Good morning. You ever notice how some movies or TV shows start with a scene that you soon find out is really the ending or the near end of the movie? And so what follows then is a flashback that builds up to that scene. So just think of Forrest Gump sitting at a bench waiting for a bus. We find out later that's near the end of the movie. Now sometimes films even put up a graphic on the screen indicating six months earlier or three days prior. I want to encourage you if you're home today to to have your Bibles out and open to Acts 10. This is a large passage of Scripture which is really interesting and it's complex in in the sense that it takes place over several days in a couple different locations. So I thought I'd begin by having the near end read. What you just heard Maria read at the end of chapter 10 is Peter's speech or his sermon as he shares the gospel, the story of Jesus, uh, to a house full of Gentiles in a place called Caesarea. So a speech or a sermon sharing the gospel in Acts is, is what you'd expect, right? I mean, after all, this is what the entire book of Acts is about. But what's unique about this story is that Peter is, for the first time, sharing the gospel with a bunch of Gentiles in a Gentile home, mainly the Roman centurion Cornelius, his family, and his friends. So I want to repeat what Pastor Stacy shared last week about the gospel and its relevance for our current challenges. Challenges like the coronavirus, the economic challenges that, that so many are facing, and the senseless loss of lives, including George Floyd and others. As Stacy shared last week, the way forward is found in the depth and the breadth of the good news of the gospel. Now, our good news this morning comes directly from verse 43 that you just heard read. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So how did we get to this particular sermon by Peter? Well, to find find out, we have to flash back four days earlier. So chapter 10, verse 1, starts with the words, at Caesarea. So let's talk about where that is. There's actually two places called Caesarea that are found in the New Testament. This is not Caesarea Philippi, which is an area up north, referenced for one event that's recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Our text And many more that are upcoming in the the book of Acts take place in Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea Maritima, located right here on the Mediterranean Sea. Caesarea Maritima is about 34 miles north of Joppa, or Jaffa. That's where Peter is, that's near modern-day Tel Aviv. And that's where Peter is staying in our text. So I visited Caesarea uh, when I was in the Holy Land. So in the first century, this was a modern Roman-influenced city built by Herod the Great about 22 years prior to the birth of Christ. And it was a major port. And from a Roman standpoint, it was even more important to Rome than Jerusalem. So Roman rule over Palestine was centered in Caesarea. The most significant thing about Caesarea was the harbor, which you see in the upper left uh, corner of this picture, this then and now picture. The harbor is not natural, but it was man-made, and it was a significant, pretty significant piece of first century engineering. Now, as we journey through Acts, we're going to see that Paul uses this harbor for his journeys. Uh, in, in our Bible app this week, I've linked a video from Dr. John Delancey, who's, who's shot some really good drone footage and has a good teaching on the city of Caesarea. So verse 1 states, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now, a Roman centurion is a equivalent to a modern-day army captain. Cap- centurion meaning they held 
uh, command of about a hundred of a hundred Roman soldiers. So Cornelius may have been one of many centurions that were stationed in Caesarea. Verse two references that Cornelius and his family were also devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So our passage begins with two visions by two men. Verse three states, one day. About three in the afternoon, he, Cornelius, had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. So this God-fearing, Roman, benevolent military leader does exactly what he's told. He sends two servants and a devout soldier that travel 34 miles south to Joppa to find and bring back Peter. The next day, day number two, we have the second vision. And this time it's Peter who's praying at noon. Now let me read from verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city... Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. So wow, you know, P Peter was hungry. And he has this very crazy vision about food descending from heaven on, on a, picnic basket, a picnic blanket of sorts. Full of things that as a Jew, he shouldn't eat. Now the specific definitions of clean and unclean animals are, are found, are provided in the food laws that we find in Leviticus 11, and they're repeated in Deuteronomy 14. We're not going to dive any more into that this morning. But the important thing is that, is that Peter's ancestral conscience told him that unclean animals could not be used for food, and even clean animals had to be ritually slaughtered correctly before they could be eaten. So Peter ponders this. Perhaps he's remembering Jesus' words in, in Mark 7. Where Jesus said nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. Verse 17 states while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision. The men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and they stopped at the gate. And they called out asking if Simon who was known as Peter was staying there. So the three Gentiles sent by Cornelius have traveled uh, from the preceding day. And they've arrived on day number two. The Holy Spirit directs Peter to greet them. Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and asked the men and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. So Peter, Peter makes an amazing 
jump in his understanding. Uh, and when you think about it, he's made several of these in the past few weeks. He's touched a dead body by raising Tabitha from the dead. That happens in chapter 9. And he's currently staying in the house of Simon, who's a tanner, who, a tanner who works with dead animals to convert their skins into leather, which is considered ceremonially unclean. And now he invites Gentiles into the house where he is staying. So a lot has come at Peter in a short period of time. And I think, to his credit, he makes the connection pretty quickly between the vision and who it is that's at his door. So like other Jews of his time, he has treated people the same way he treats food. He's regarded some food and some people as unclean and not pure. And he makes the connection that his vision really isn't about food, or just about food, but rather it applies to these Gentiles, these people, these people of different ethnicity that are now at his door. So the next day, day number three, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, day number four, he arrived in Caesarea. So we learn in the next chapter that Peter takes six Jewish believers with him on this trip. And this is important because these six Jewish witnesses will be necessary validation when Peter is later confronted by the other apostles and, and other believers in Judea. So Peter arrives in Caesarea. Verse 24 states, Cornelius was expecting them and he had called together his relatives and close friends. So I think Peter's had some time to, to pray and think about this as he's traveled the past couple days. And I'm, I'm guessing... He was quite nervous about what God was calling him to do, and he didn't know quite what to expect. Now, despite all that he's been taught as a Jew, he's about to enter a Gentile house, and the first thing that happens is Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in, reference, in, in reverence. Now, as I stated earlier, Cornelius was a devout, God-fearing, benevolent man, but he still has a lot to learn theologically about God. But Peter made him stand up, made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Now, interpretations vary on, on, on Peter's tone in this next verse, in verse 28. But I'm guessing Peter's nervous. I mean, this, this Gentile just tried to worship him. I think that'd make any of us nervous, uneasy. Peter enters the house, and he fi finds this large Gentile gathering. And I don't know what he thought his opening statement would be, but to me, his, his opening greeting is not much of an icebreaker. It's hardly something that we'd find in how to win friends and influence people. Peter, I guess he can't help himself. Perhaps the nerves kick in and he's uneasy and he just, he just feels like he has to say this. And he says, you are well aware that it's against our law for Jews to associate with or visit a Gentile. Well, that's just great, Peter. Fantastic. You know, what's interesting there is there is no Old Testament prohibition forbidding social contact with a Gentile. Rather, rabbis have made it Jewish tradition over time. And I, I think Peter knows this. I, I just think he's very nervous about what's happening. And I'm actually, in a way, I'm glad this is here. I mean, it gives me some comfort because I say things all the time that I second guess. And I'm glad God isn't dependent on me getting words right. In fact, as we're about to see, what happens next has very little to do with Peter and his performance. And I think this is a good reminder for us. Peter recovers, however, and states, but God has shown me that I should not call anything impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Cornelius then recounts his vision to Peter, including the angels 
directive to send for Peter, including the details that, that the angel stated that he is a, a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the seas. So Cornelius says, so I sent for you immediately and it was good of you to come. So, so for Peter and these other six Jews who've come with him, what do you do? What do you say to this? I mean, in a first century context, there is no way Cornelius could know this level of detail about where Peter was apart from God. Plus, Cornelius utters words that no preacher can resist. Cornelius states, Now we are here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Okay then. So do you think uh, you could tell the story of Jesus if someone opened a door like that for you? you know, Cornelius essentially put the ball on the tee and told Peter to swing away. We are all ears. Peter humbly responds in verse 34. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And I think that the humility and sincerity of these God-fearing Gentiles has made an impression on Peter. And it's interesting to me that in verse 36 and 37, he uses the words as they're translated in English, you know. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. And it's apparent that much of this was, was known, even to these Gentiles. Now, I had this next portion of the scripture read earlier. Maria read it. Let me summarize this plain and simple, wonderful gospel that's presented in verse, verses 36 through 43. Verse 36, Jesus is Lord of all. Verse 37, the gospel began with the repentance preached by John the Baptist. Verse 38, God empowered Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus did good, healing the sick and delivering those who had been held captive by the devil. Verse 39, Jesus was crucified by those who rejected him. And the apostles witnessed this. Verse 40 and 41. They also witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. As did others. And they ate with him. And they drank with him. Verse 42. Jesus gave his, his witnesses the great commission. To preach to people. And testify that he will return to judge the living and dead. And in verse 43. The whole counsel of God throughout the whole testament. Points to the fact that everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus, receives forgiveness of their sins, and salvation is available to people of every nation, every nation, without distinction. And I stated earlier that Cornelius has put the ball on the tee for Peter to preach, and Peter had to be licking his chops to preach, right? Well, he doesn't get to preach for long. God doesn't even let him finish. And I think this entire experience has to be very humbling for Peter. I mean, his, his Jewish cultural beliefs about food and Gentiles have been shattered. God has pushed him way outside his comfort zone. He's done things he never thought he would do or should do. And now he's partly through a very inspired message, and God essentially says, thank you, that's enough. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. This is like God saying to Peter, good job, you've done enough. It was really never about you. I've got this. And Peter and the other, others, they're astonished that they have seen this, they've experienced this themselves in Acts 2. 
The Greek word that's translated as Gentiles is ethnos, which means many things, including nation or race. Both the original and now this second Pentecost are, are God's call to reach the other ethnicities and not keep this gospel for ourselves. Peter rightly concludes in verse 47, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water, for they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is an important understanding for Peter. And it's a beginning in the change of trajectory of the understanding of Gentiles in the gospel. Up to this point in time, it was believed that in order to become a Christian, you first had to be Jewish, either by birth or by becoming a Jewish proselyte. This second Gentile Pentecost is significant. And Peter's going to reference the gift of the Holy Spirit being given to these Gentiles on at least two more occasions when he's defending his action. Now, I've left the Pentecost banner up from last week because in a sense, Pentecost wasn't complete. You know, in response to the killing of George Floyd last week, right before Pentecost, I was reading an article by Esau McCauley, who's the, one of the assistant professors of New Testament at Wheaton College. He's African-American, and I want to quote from him extensively because I want you to hear his words, not mine. So in his article titled, A Nation on Fire Needs the Flames of the Spirit, he, write, he writes regarding Pentecost, there's not one Holy Spirit that enables women to declare God, the word of God and another for men. There's not one spirit that gives words to the rich and others to the poor. There's not one Holy Spirit that allows us to speak to African peoples and another that allows us to speak to, to Asians or Europeans. The one spirit sends the one gospel to the varied peoples on the earth. And he adds, the first thing the gospel did was to bring people together under the lordship of Christ. He continues, in other words, the form of Pentecost, women, men, rich, poor, declaring the mighty works of God, supports the theology of Pentecost, the idea that the gospel is for everyone. That held true for the early church. It also holds true for the American church in the 21st century. And he rightly concludes, we, the American church, have a message for a country and a world on fire. There's a God who loves you, and died that you might know him. That, this love is sufficient to gather the divided peoples of the world. Even when all the politicians and philosophers fail. There's a God of justice who sees and acts on the behalf of the beleaguered peoples of the world. People like George Floyd. There is a king and a kingdom. And he has given us his spirit to make him known to the ends of the earth. End quote. This passage is about a lot of things. But I think it's mostly about Peter and what needed to change in him. Peter needed to witness this Gentile Pentecost. I mean, when you think about it, man, what an overwhelming, humbling, life-changing, comfort zone destroying, stereotype shattering, Holy Spirit moving, four-day adventure for Peter and the six Jews who traveled with him, as well as the Gentiles in Cornelius' home who received salvation and we're baptized with water and with the Holy Spirit. What a gift to us that we have this story preserved for us. More importantly, what a gift of God, of the good news that everyone who believes in him, including us Gentiles today, receive forgiveness of sins through his name. 
So what does this passage say to us today in our context? I think a few things stand out to me. First, I feel that this passage clearly shows that God is at work in people's lives independent of our efforts. Just as with Cornelius, God prepares people and he changes their hearts. And God is very much the orchestrator of this whole encounter. And I believe he still orchestrates encounters in our lives today. If we are willing to stop and listen to him. Commentator Dean Pinter states that the people of God are ever and always following and catching up in witness, as it were, to the work of the Spirit of God. We're always catching up in witness to the work of the Spirit of God. Both Cornelius and Peter were seeking God in prayer when he moved in their lives. And while I haven't experienced a, a vision, I had an experience like Cornelius where I've been visited by an angel in shining clothes, or nor have I fell into a trance where I experienced a vision as vivid as what Peter did on three occasions, I have had times where I felt the Spirit of God clearly giving me direction to do something specific. And we all have. I think many of us have. And it often begins when we're praying. Because one of the most important features of prayer is that we are stopping to give God our attention. And that leads me to my second thought. This passage reminds us of the importance of prayer and that it is a two-way conversation. So evangelism often begins with prayer and it's rooted in prayer. And our evangelism initiative, BLESS, the B stands for Begin With Prayer. In our text, prayer was happening on both ends of this exchange long before Cornelius and Peter even met. God was preparing them both for what he was going to do. Commentator Bob Deffenbaugh puts it this way, Prayer is not just speaking to God. Prayer is God speaking to those who are listening to him when they pray. Prayer is God speaking to those who are listening to him when they pray. Now we've mentioned this the past two Sundays. In your Bible app live event, there's a link to sign up for Bless Every Home. This is a fantastic way for us to pray for our neighbors. I signed up for this last week and I've been praying for my neighbors throughout the week. And it's an opportunity for us to listen to the Spirit as we seek opportunities to share the story of Christ with our neighbors. And my third observation is that evangelism is also transformational for us. Now, even though God is the primary orchestrator and the mover in this entire scene, and God clearly started all that happens in chapter 10 with these two independent encounters with these two men. But when you think about it, God very well have could just delivered this message, same message to Cornelius through the angel in the first place. But he didn't. He chose Peter. God chooses Peter because I still think there's work that needs to be done in Peter, as well as Cornelius. I view all that happens in the book of Acts through the lens of Acts 1.8, where Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we see that God continually had to kick this young church out of the nest, so to speak. And this would happen. Again, he's not done kicking them out of the nest regarding the gospel and the races, as we're going to see in, this, in the chapters that are upcoming. Even though the Apostle Paul would be the primary missionary to the ends of the earth, there, there was work that needed to be done in Peter's life as well. One commentator called this the perfecting of Peter. There were some reforms that needed to take place in Peter, if you will. So question, where do you and I need to be transformed in terms of how we see those who are different than us? Now, we don't have time this morning to unpack chapter 11, but I want to invite you to read what happens next to see how God uses this encounter 
to shape and change his church. You know, the conversion of Cornelius and the reforms that take place in Peter are going to come back into play, especially when we get to the Council of Jerusalem that takes place in Acts 15, which is one of the most important things that happens in the book of Acts. So God didn't need Peter. He doesn't need us, but he chooses us to be his hands and feet in mission. And Cornelius and his friends, their, their, their family, their lives were forever altered by this encounter. Peter was changed, reformed for the better for this, by this encounter, perfected, if you will. And evangelism not only brings people into the kingdom, but it also transforms, it, it perfects us as God's instruments. It's something God uses us to, to form us more into Christ's image, what we call Christiformity. When I traveled with the music ministry years ago, my, my director, Joe Alessi, used to ask a couple questions of people. And he was rather direct when he did it. He would ask, how are things going with your faith walk with Jesus? And then he would ask, when's the last time you told someone about him? You see, those two things are connected. Evangelism brings people into the kingdom, but it also transforms us as his disciples. Now lastly, I think that this passage gives us just a wonderfully concise example of how to share the story of Jesus. Starting in verse 36, Peter shares his story of his life, walking with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, which is the gospel, the story of Jesus. And the story is simple. Peter speaks of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his plan for all people. Now we also have a story. Now, we didn't see Jesus' earthly ministry with our own eyes like Peter did, but we have a story, and our story usually has the elements of I, I was once lost and now I'm found, but we also have access to Christ's story, the gospel. Like I said, Peter packages it up wonderfully, quite nicely in verse 36 through 43, and when sharing with someone who could easily just read the summary of the story of Jesus from Acts 10 that Maria read earlier, so I want to end this morning with this question. If you're watching for the first time, or perhaps you've been with us for a while, have you received the gift of salvation through faith that God has to offer to both Jews and Gentiles alike? The gospel, the story of Jesus, it's the best and the only answer I have for the world that we live in. Jesus is our king, and his kingdom is coming. Injustice, racism, hatred, violence, a pandemic will not stop this. You see, this is a life-changing truth, but it'll do you no good unless you receive God's offer of salvation for you by trusting in Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. So if you're watching this morning and you never placed your faith in Jesus as Lord, believing that he died for you and he rose again, and if you want to, you can pray with me silently. Just repeat after me. Let's go to God in prayer. God, I confess my need for a Savior. I cannot make any sense of this world myself. I can't fix it, and I can't fix myself. Jesus, I believe that you are God. You took on flesh to die for me, and you rose again, paying a price for my sin and making a way for me to have a relationship with you. I confess you as Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you 
It is by your grace that we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, Lord. And we thank you for new life in Christ and for salvation. You are worthy to be praised. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning for the first time, I'd like you to let us know. You can reach out to me or Pastor Stacy or Pastor Jordan. You can like this comment below in the Facebook comment section if you want. Or you can let us know through the virtual communication card that's found right above this live stream on our webpage. Or our emails can also be found on our webpage, ecclife.net. Amen.